With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to Percy Jackson and the Olympians, the Sea of Monsters. Chapter 5. I get a new cabin mate. Ever come home and found your room messed up? Like some helpful person, hi mom, has tried to clean it, and suddenly you can't find anything, and even if nothing is missing, you get that creepy feeling that somebody's been looking through your private stuff, dusting everything with lemon furniture polish. That's kind of the way I felt seeing Camp Half-Blood again. On the surface, things didn't look all that different. The big house was still there with its blue gabled roof and its wraparound porch, the strawberry fields still baked in the sun. The same white-columned Greek buildings were scattered around the valley. The amphitheater, the combat arena, the dining pavilion overlooking Long Island Sound. And nestled between the woods and the creek were the same cabins, a crazy assortment of 12 buildings, each representing a different Olympian god. But there was an air of danger now. You could tell something was wrong. Instead of playing volleyball in the sand pit, counselors and satyrs were stockpiling weapons in the tool shed. Dryads, armed with bows and arrows, talked nervously at the edge of the woods. The forest looked sickly. The grass in the meadows was a pale yellow, and the fire marks on Half-Blood Hill stood out like ugly scars. Somebody had messed with my favorite place in the world, and I was not, well, a happy camper. As we made our way to the big house, I recognized a lot of kids from last summer. Nobody stopped to talk. Nobody said, hey, welcome back. Some did double takes when they saw Tyson, but mostly they just walked grimly past and carried on with their duties, running messages, toting swords to sharpen on the grinding wheels, etc. The camp felt like a military school, and believe me, I know, I've been kicked out of a couple. None of that mattered to Tyson. He was absolutely fascinated by everything he saw. What's that? He gasped. The stable for the pegasi? I said, the winged horses. What's that? Um, those are the toilets. What's that? The cabins for the campers. If they don't know who your Olympian parent is, they put you in Hermes' cabin. That brown one over there? Unless, or sorry, until you're determined. Then, once they know, they put you in your dad or mom's group. He looked at me in awe. You have a cabin? Number three, I said. I pointed to a low gray building made of sea stone. You live with friends in the cabin? No, no, it's just me. I didn't feel like explaining. The embarrassing truth was I was the only one who stayed in the cabin because I wasn't supposed to be alive. The big three gods, Zeus, Poseidon, and Hades, had made a pact after World War II not to have any more children with mortals. We were more powerful than regular half-bloods. 
and we were too unpredictable. When we got mad, we tended to cause problems, like World War II, for instance. The Big Three Pact had only been broken twice, once when Zeus sired Natalia, and once when Poseidon sired me. None of us should have been born. Talia had gotten herself turned into a pine tree when she was 12, and me, well, I was doing my best not to follow her example. I had nightmares about what Poseidon might turn me into if I were ever on the verge of death. Plankton, maybe, or a floating patch of kelp. When we got to the big house, we found Chiron in his apartment, listening to his favorite 1960s lounge music while he packed his saddlebags. I guess I should mention that Chiron is a centaur. From the waist up, he looks like a regular, middle-aged guy with curly brown hair and a scraggly beard. But from the waist down, he's a white stallion. He can pass for human by compacting his lower half into a magical wheelchair. In fact, he'd passed himself off as my Latin teacher during my sixth grade year. But most of the time, if the ceilings are high enough, he prefers hanging out in full centaur form. As soon as we saw him, Tyson froze. Pony! He cried in total rapture. Chiron turned, looking offended. I beg your pardon? Annabeth ran up and hugged him. Chiron, what's happening? You're not leaving, are you? Her voice was shaky. Chiron was like a second father to her. Chiron ruffled her hair and gave her a kindly smile. Hello, child. And Percy, my goodness, you've grown over the year. I swallowed. Clarice said that you were... You were... Fired. Chiron's eyes glinted with dark humor. Ah, yes. Well, someone had to take the blame. Lord Zeus was most upset. The tree he'd created from the spirit of his daughter? Poisoned, of all things. Mr. D had to punish someone. Besides himself, you mean? I growled. Just the thought of the camp director, Mr. D, made me angry. But this is crazy, Annabeth cried. Chiron, you couldn't have done anything to Talia's tree. Well, nevertheless, Chiron said... Some in Olympus do not trust me now, under the circumstances. What circumstances? I asked. Chiron's face darkened. He stuffed a Latin English dictionary into his saddlebag while Frank Sinatra music oozed from his, from his boombox. Tyson was still staring at Chiron in amazement. He whimpered like he wanted to pat Chiron's flank but was afraid to come closer. Pony? Chiron sniffed. My dear young Cyclops, I am a centaur. Chiron, I said, what about the tree? What happened? He shook his head sadly. The poison used on Talia's pine is something from the underworld, Percy. Some venom that I've never seen. It must have come from a monster quite deep in the pits of Tartarus. Well, then we know who's responsible. Crow, do not invoke the Titan Lord's name, Percy. Especially not here. Not now. But last summer, he tried to cause a civil war in Olympus. This has to be his idea. He'd get Luke to do it, that traitor. Perhaps, Chiron said. But I fear I am being held responsible because I did not prevent it, and I cannot cure it. The tree has only a few weeks of life left, unless... Unless what? Annabeth asked. No, Chiron said. A foolish thought. The whole valley is feeling the shock of the poison. The magical borders are deteriorating. The camp itself is dying. Only one source of magic would be strong enough to reverse the poison. And it was lost centuries ago. What is it? I asked. We'll go find it. Chiron closed his saddlebag. 
He pressed the stop button on his boombox, and then he turned and rested his hand on my shoulder, looking me straight in the eyes. Percy, you must promise me that you will not act rashly. I told your mother I did not want you to come here at all this summer. It's much too dangerous. But now that you're here, stay here. Train hard, learn to fight, but do not leave. Why? I asked. I want to do something. I can't just let the borders fail. The whole camp will be overrun by monsters, Chiron said. Yes, I fear so. But you must not let yourself be baited into hasty action. This could be a trap of the Titan Lord. Remember last summer? He almost took your life. It was true, but still. I wanted so badly to help. I also wanted to make Kronos pay. I mean, you'd think the Titan Lord would have learned his lesson eons ago when he was overthrown by the gods. You'd think that getting chopped up into a million pieces and cast into the darkest part of the underworld would give him a subtle clue that nobody wanted him around. But no, because he was immortal, he was still alive down there in Tartarus, suffering in eternal pain, hungering to return and take revenge on Olympus. He couldn't act on his own, but he was great at twisting the minds of mortals and even the gods to do his dirty work. The poisoning had to be his doing. Who else would be so low as to attack Talia's tree, the only thing left of a hero who'd given her life to save her friends? Annabeth was trying hard not to cry. Chiron brushed a tear from her cheek. Stay with Percy, child, he told her. Keep him safe. The prophecy. Remember it. I... I will, Annabeth said. Um, I asked... Would this be the super dangerous prophecy that has me in it, but the gods have forbidden you to tell me anything about it? Nobody answered. Right, I muttered. Just checking. Chiron, Annabeth said, you told me the gods made you immortal only so long as you were needed to train heroes. If they dismiss you from camp, then... Swear you will do your best to keep Percy from danger, he insisted. Swear upon the river Styx. I, I swear upon the river sticks, Annabeth said. Thunder rumbled outside. <sighs> Very well, Chiron said. He seemed to relax just a little. Perhaps my name will be cleared and I shall return. Until then, I go visit my wild kinsmen in the Everglades. It's possible they know of some cure for the poison tree that I have forgotten. In any event, I will stay in exile until this matter is resolved. One way or another. Annabeth stifled a a sob. Chiron patted her shoulder awkwardly. There now, child. I must entrust your safety to Mr. D and the new activities director. We must hope, well, perhaps they won't destroy the camp quite as quickly as I fear. Who is this tantalus guy anyway? I demanded. Where does he get off taking your job? A conchhorn blew across the valley. I hadn't realized how late it was. It was time for the campers to assemble for dinner. Go, Chiron said. You will meet him at the pavilion. I will contact your mother, Percy, and I'll let her know that you're safe. No doubt she's worried by now. Just remember my warning. You are in grave danger. Do not think for a moment that the Titan Lord has forgotten about you. With that, he clopped out of the apartment and down the hall. Tyson called after him. Pony, don't go. I realized that I'd forgotten to tell Chiron about my dream of Grover. Now it was too late. The best teacher I had ever had was gone, and maybe for good. Tyson started bawling almost as hard as Annabeth. I tried to tell him that things would be okay, but I didn't believe it. 
The sun was setting behind the dining pavilion as the campers came up from their cabins. We stood in the shadow of a marble column and watched them file in. Annabeth was still pretty shaken up, but she promised that she'd talk to us later. Then she went off to go join her siblings from the Athena cabin, a dozen boys and girls with blonde hair and gray eyes like hers. Annabeth wasn't the oldest, but she'd been at camp more summers than just about anybody. You could tell that by looking at her camp necklace. One bead for every summer, and Annabeth had six. No one questioned her right to lead the line. Next came Clarice, leading the Ares cabin. She had one arm in a sling and a nasty-looking gash on her cheek. But otherwise, her encounter with the bronze bulls didn't seem to have fazed her. Someone had taped a piece of paper to her back that said, You moo, girl. But nobody in her cabin was bothering to tell her about it. After the Ares kids came off the Hephaestus cabin, after the Ares kids came the Hephaestus cabin, six guys led by Charles Beckendorf, a big 15-year-old African-American kid. He had hands the size of catcher's mitts and a face that was hard and squinty from looking into a blacksmith's forge all day. He was nice enough once you got to know him, but nobody ever called him Charlie or Chuck or Charles. Most just called him Beckendorf. Rumor was he could make anything. Give him a chunk of metal and he could create a razor-sharp sword or a robotic warrior or a singing bird bath for your grandmother's garden. Whatever you wanted. The other cabins filed in. Demeter, Apollo, Aphrodite, Dionysus. Naiads came up from the canoe lake. Dryads melted out of the trees. From the meadow came a dozen satyrs who reminded me painfully of Grover. I'd always had a soft spot for the satyrs. When they were at camp, they had to do all kinds of odd jobs for Mr. D, the director. But their most important work was out in the real world. They were the camp seekers. They went undercover into schools all over the world, looking for potential half-bloods and escorting them back to camp. That's how I'd met Grover. He'd been the first one to recognize that I was a demigod. After the satyrs filed in to the dinner, the Hermes cabin brought up the rear. They were always the biggest cabin. Last summer, it had been led by Luke, the guy who'd fought with Talia and Annabeth on top of Half-Blood Hill. For a while, before Poseidon had claimed me, I'd lodged in the Hermes cabin. Luke had befriended me, and then he tried to kill me. Now the Hermes cabin was led by Travis and Connor Stoll. They weren't twins, but they looked so much alike, it didn't matter. I could never remember which one was the older. They were both tall and skinny with mops of brown hair that clung to their faces and hung in their eyes. They were, or- they were orange Camp Half-Blood t-shirts untucked over baggy shorts. They had those elfish features that all the Hermes kids had. Upturned eyebrows, sarcastic smiles, and a gleam in their eyes whenever they looked at you. Like they were about to drop a firecracker down your shirt. I'd always thought it was kind of funny that the god of thieves would have kids with the last name Stoll. But the only time I mentioned it to Travis and Connor, they both stared at me blankly like they didn't get the joke. As soon as the last of the campers filed in, I led Tyson into the middle of the pavilion. Conversations faltered. Heads turned. Who invited that? Somebody at the Apollo table murmured. I glared in the direction, but I couldn't figure out who'd spoken. From the head table, a familiar voice drawled out. Well, well. If it isn't Peter Johnson, my millennium is complete. I gritted my teeth. Percy Jackson, sir. Mr. D sipped his Diet Coke. Yes, well, as you young people say these days, whatever. He was wearing his usual leopard patterned Hawaiian shirt and walking shorts and tennis shoes with black socks. With his pudgy belly and his blotchy red face, he looked like a Vegas tourist who'd stayed up too late at the casinos. 
Behind him, a nervous-looking satyr was peeling the skins off of grapes and handing them to Mr. D one at a time. Mr. D's real name was Dionysus, the god of wine. Zeus appointed him director of Camp Half-Blood to dry him out for a few hundred years, a punishment for chasing some off-limits wood nymph. Next to him, where Chiron usually sat, or stood in centaur form, was someone that I'd never seen before. A pale, horribly thin man in a threadbare orange prisoner's jumpsuit. The number over his pocket read 0001. He had blue shadows under his eyes, dirty fingernails, and a badly cut gray hair. Like his last haircut had been done with a weed whacker instead of scissors. He stared at me. His eyes made me nervous. He looked fractured, angry and frustrated and hungry all at the same time. This boy, Dionysus said, you need to watch. Poseidon's child, you know. Ah, yes, the prisoner said. That one. His tone made it obvious that he and Dionysus had already discussed me at length. I am Tantalus, the prisoner said, smiling coldly. On special assignment here until, well, until my lord Dionysus decides otherwise. And you, Perseus Jackson, I do expect you to refrain from causing any more trouble. Trouble, I demanded. Dionysus snapped his fingers. A newspaper appeared on the table. The front page of today's New York Post. There was my yearbook picture from Meriwether Prep. It was hard for me to make out the headline, but I was pretty sure that I knew what it said. Something like, 13-year-old lunatic tortures gymnasium. Yes. Trouble, Tantalus said with satisfaction. You caused plenty of it last summer, I understand. I was too mad to speak. Like it was my fault the gods had almost gotten into a civil war. A satyr inched forward nervously and set the plate of barbecue in front of Tantalus. The new activities director licked his lips. He looked at his empty goblet and said, Root beer, bark special stock, 1967. The glass filled itself with foamy soda. Tantalus stretched out his hand hesitantly, as if he were afraid the goblet was hot. Go on then, old fellow, Dionysus said, a strange sparkle in his eyes. Perhaps now it will work. Tantalus grabbed for the glass, but it scooted away before he could touch it. A few drops of root beer spilled, and Tantalus tried to dab them up with his fingers. But the drops rolled away like quicksilver before he could touch them. He growled and turned toward the plate of barbecue. He picked up a fork and tried to stab the piece of brisket, but his plate skittered down at the table and flew off the end, straight into the coals of the brazier. Blast! Tantalus muttered. Oh, well, Dionysus said, his voice dripping with false sympathy. Perhaps a few more days. Believe me, old chap, working at this camp will be torture enough. I'm sure your old curse will fade eventually. Eventually, muttered Tantalus, staring at Dionysus' Diet Coke. Do you have any idea how dry one's throat gets after 3,000 years? You're from the fields of punishment, I said. You're the one who stands on the lake with a fruit tree hanging over you. But you can't eat or drink. Tantalus sneered at me. A real scholar, aren't you, boy? You must have done something really horrible when you were alive, I said, mildly impressed. What was it? Tantalus's eyes narrowed. Behind him, the satyrs were shaking their heads vigorously, trying to warn me. I'll be watching you, Percy Jackson, Tantalus said. I don't want any problems at my camp. Your camp has problems already, sir. Oh, go sit down, Johnson, Dionysus sighed. I believe that table over there is yours. 
You know, the one where no one else ever wants to sit. My face was burning, but I knew better than to talk back. Dionysus was an overgrown brat, but he was immortal. A super, a super powerful, overgrown brat. I said, come on, Tyson. Oh, no, Tantalus said. The monster stays here. We must decide what to do with it. Him, I snapped. His name is Tyson. The new activities director raised an eyebrow. Tyson saved the camp, I insisted. He pounded those brown bulls. Otherwise, they would have burned this whole place down. Yes, Tantalus said. And what a pity that would have been. Dionysus snickered. Leave us, Tantalus ordered. While we decide this creature's fate. Tyson looked at me with fear in his one big eye. And I knew I couldn't possibly disobey a direct order from the camp directors. Not openly, anyways. I'll be right over here, big guy, I promised. Don't worry, we'll find you a good place to sleep tonight. Tyson nodded. I believe you. You are my friend. Which made me feel a whole lot guiltier. I trudged over to the Poseidon table and slumped into the bench. A wood nymph brought me a plate of Olympian olive and pepperoni pizza. But I wasn't hungry. I'd been almost killed twice today. I'd managed to end my school year with a complete disaster, and Camp Half-Blood was in serious trouble, and Chiron had told me not to do anything about it. I didn't feel very thankful, but I took my dinner up, to, as was customary, to the bronze brazier and scraped part of it into the flames. Poseidon, I murmured, accept my offering. And send me some help while you're at it, I prayed silently. Please. The smoke from the burning pizza changed into something fragrant. The smell of a clean sea breeze with wildflowers mixed in. But I had no idea if that meant my father was really listening. I went back to my seat. I didn't think things could get much worse, but then Tantalus had one of the satyrs blow the conch horn to get our attention for announcements. Yes, well, Tantalus said once the talking had died down. Another fine meal, or so I'm told. As he spoke, he inched his hand toward his refilled dinner plate. As if maybe, just maybe, the food wouldn't notice what he was doing. But it did. It shot down the table as soon as he got within six inches of it. And here, on my first day of authority, he continued, I'd like to say what a pleasant form of punishment it is to be here. Over the course of the summer, I hope to torture, um, and interact with each and every one of you children. You all look good enough to eat. Dionysus clapped politely, leading to some half-hearted applause from the satyrs. Tyson was still standing at the head table, looking uncomfortable. But every time he tried to scoot out of the limelight, Tantalus pulled him back. And now, some changes. Tantalus gave the campers a crooked smile. We are reinstituting the chariot races. Murmuring broke out all over the tables. Excitement, fear, disbelief. Now, I know, Tantalus continued raising his voice that these races were discontinued some years ago due to um, technical problems. Three deaths and 26 mutilations, someone at the Apollo table called. Yes, yes, Tantalus said. But I know that you will all join me in welcoming the return of this camp tradition. Golden laurels will go to the winning charioteers each month. Teams may register in the morning, the first race will be held in three days' time. We will release you from most of your regular activities to prepare your chariots and choose your horses. 
Oh, and did I mention the victorious team's cabin will do no chores for the entire month in which they win? An explosion of excited conversation. No KP for a whole month? No stable cleaning? Was he serious? But then, the last person I I expected to object did so. But sir, Clarice said. She looked nervous, but she stood up to speak from the Aries table. Some of the campers snickered when they saw the You Moo Girl sign on her back. What about patrol duty? I mean, if we drop everything to ready our chariots. Ah, yes, the hero of the day, Tantalus exclaimed. Brave Clarice, who single-handedly bested the bronze bulls. Clarice blinked and then blushed. Um, I didn't. And modest, too, Tantalus grinned. Not to worry, my dear. This is a summer camp. We are here to enjoy ourselves, yes? But the tree! And now, Tantalus said, as several of Clarice's cabin mates pulled her back into her seat, before we proceed to the campfire and the sing-along, one slight housekeeping issue. Percy Jackson and Annabeth Chase have seen fit, for some reason, to bring this here. Tantalus waved a hand towards Tyson. Uneasy murmuring spread amongst the campers. A lot of sideways looks at me. I wanted to kill Tantalus. Now, of course, he said, Cyclopses have a reputation for being bloodthirsty monsters with a very small brain capacity. Under normal circumstances, I would release this beast into the woods and have you hunt it down with torches and pointed sticks. But who knows, perhaps this Cyclops is not as horrible as most of its brethren. Until it proves worthy of destruction, we need a place to keep it. I've thought about the stables, but that will make the horses nervous. Hermes' cabin, possibly? Silence at the Hermes' cabin. Travis and Connor Stoll developed a sudden interest in the tablecloth. I couldn't blame them. The Hermes' cabin was always full to bursting. There was no way they could take in a six-foot-three cyclops. Oh, come now, Tantalus chided. The monster may be able to do some menial chores. Any suggestions as to where such a beast should be kenneled? Suddenly, everyone gasped. Tantalus scooted away from Tyson in surprise. All I could do was stare in disbelief at the brilliant green light that was about to change my life. A dazzling, holographic image had just appeared above Tyson's head. With a snickering, with a sickening twist in my stomach, I realized something that Annabeth had said earlier about Cyclopses. They're the children of nature spirits and gods. Well, one god in particular, usually. Swirling over Tyson was a glowing green trident, the same symbol that had appeared above me the day Poseidon had claimed me as his son. There was a moment of awed silence. Being claimed was a rare event. Some campers waited in vain for it their whole lives. When I'd been claimed by Poseidon last summer, Everyone had reverently knelt, but now they followed Tantalus's lead, and Tantalus roared with laughter. Well, I think we know where to put the beast now. By the gods, I can see the family resemblance. Everybody laughed except Annabeth and a few of my other friends. Tyson didn't seem to notice. He was too mystified, trying to swat the glowing trident that was now fading over his head. He was too innocent to understand how much people were making fun of him and how cruel people were. But I got it. I had a new cabin mate. I had a monster for a half-brother. And that is the end of chapter 5.
Chapter 6, Demon Pigeons Attack. For the next few days were like torture, just like Tantalus wanted. First, there was Tyson moving into the Poseidon cabin, giggling to himself every 15 seconds, saying, Percy is my brother, like he just won the lottery. Oh, Tyson, I said, it's not that simple. But there was no explaining it to him. He was in heaven, and me... As much as I liked the big guy, I couldn't help feeling embarrassed, ashamed. There, I said it. My father, the all-powerful Poseidon, had gotten moon-eyed for some nature spirit, and Tyson had been the result. I mean, I'd read the myths about Cyclopses. I even remembered that they were often Poseidon's children. But I'd never really processed that this made them my family. Until, of course, I had Tyson living with me in the next bunk over. And then there was the comments from the other campers. Suddenly, I wasn't Percy Jackson, the cool guy who'd retrieved Zeus's lightning bolt last summer. Now I was Percy Jackson, the poor schmuck with the ugly monster for a brother. He's not my real brother, I protested whenever Tyson wasn't around. He's more like a half-brother on the monster side of the family, like a half-brother twice removed or something. Nobody bought it. I admit, I was angry at my dad. I felt like being his son was now a joke. Annabeth tried to make me feel better. She suggested that we team up for the chariot races to take our minds off our problems. Don't get me wrong, we both hated Tantalus, but we were worried sick about the camp. We didn't even know what to do about it. Until we could come up with some brilliant plan to save Talia's tree, we figured we might as well just go along with the races. After all, Annabeth's mom, Athena, had invented the chariot, and my dad had created horses. Together, we would own that track. One morning, Annabeth and I were sitting by the canoe lake, sketching chariot designs, with some of the jokers from the Aphrodite's cabin walked by and asked me if I needed to borrow some eyeliner for my eye. Oh, sorry. Eyes. And then they walked away laughing. Annabeth grumbled. Just ignore them, Percy. It isn't your fault you have a monster for a brother. He's not my brother, I snapped. And he's not a monster either. Annabeth raised her eyes. Hey, don't get mad at me. And technically, he is a monster. Well, you gave him permission to enter the camp. Because it was the only way to save your life, seaweed brain. I mean, I'm sorry, Percy. I just didn't expect Poseidon to claim him. Cyclopses are the most deceitful, treacherous. He is not. What have you got against Cyclopses anyways? Annabeth's ears turned pink. I got the feeling there was something she wasn't telling me. Something bad. Just forget it, she said. Now, the axle for this chariot. You're treating him like he's this horrible thing, I said. He saved my life. Annabeth threw down her pencil and stood. Well, then maybe you should design a chariot with him. Maybe I should. Fine. Fine. She stormed off and left me feeling worse than before. Over the next couple days, I tried to keep my mind off of my problems. Selena Beauregard, one of the nicer girls from the Aphrodite cabin, gave me my first riding lesson on a Pegasus. She explained that since there was only one immortal winged horse named Pegasus, who still wandered free somewhere in the skies, but over the eons he'd sired a lot of children, none quite so fast or heroic, but all of them named after the first and greatest. Being the son of the sea god, I never liked going into the air. My dad has, has this rivalry with Zeus, so I tried to stay out of the Lord of the Skies domain as much as possible. But riding a winged horse felt different. 
It didn't make me nearly as nervous as being in an airplane. Maybe that was because my dad had created horses out of sea foam. So the Pegasi were sort of like neutral territory. I could understand their thoughts, and I wasn't surprised when my Pegasus went galloping over the treetops or chased a flock of seagulls into a cloud. The problem was that Tyson wanted to ride the chicken ponies too, but the Pegasi got skittish whenever he approached. I told them telepathically that Tyson wouldn't hurt them, but they didn't seem to believe me, and that made Tyson cry. The only person at camp who had no problem with Tyson was Beckendorf from the Hephaestus cabin. The blacksmith god had always worked with Cyclopses in his forges. So Beckendorf took Tyson down to the armory to teach him metalworking. He'd said he'd have Tyson crafting magic items like a master in no time. After lunch, I worked out in the, air, in the arena with Apollo's cabin. Swordplay had always been my strength. People said I was better at it than any camper in the last hundred years. It, people always compared me to Luke. I thrashed the Apollo guys easily. I should have been testing myself against the Ares and Athena cabins, since they had the best sword fighters. But I didn't get along with Clarice and her siblings, and after my argument with Annabeth, I just didn't want to see her. I went to the archery class, even though I was terrible at it. And it wasn't the same without Chiron's teaching. In arts and crafts, I started a marble bust of Poseidon, but it started looking more like Sylvester Stallone, so I ditched it. I scaled the climbing wall in full lava and earthquake mode. And in the evenings, I did border patrol, even though Tantalus had insisted that we forget trying to protect the camp. Some of the campers had quietly kept it up, working out a schedule during our free times. I sat at the top of Half-Blood Hill and watched the dryads come and go, singing to the dying pine tree. Satyrs brought their reed pipes and played nature magic songs. And for a while, the pine needles seemed to get fuller. The flowers on the hill smelled a little sweeter, and the grass looked greener. But as soon as the music stopped, the sickness crept back into the air. The whole hill seemed to be infected, dying from the poison that had sunk into the tree's roots. The longer I sat there, the angrier I got. Luke had done this. I remembered his sly smile, the dragon claw scar across his face. He'd pretended to be my friend, and the whole time he'd been Kronos' number one servant. I opened the palm of my hand. The scar Luke had given me last summer was fading, but I could still see it. A white asterisk-shaped wound where his pit scorpion had stung me. I thought about what Luke had told me right before he tried to kill me. Goodbye, Percy. There is a new golden age coming. You won't be a part of it. At night, I had more dreams of Grover. Sometimes, I just heard scratches of his voice. Once, I heard him say, It's here. Another time, he likes sheep. I thought about telling Annabeth about my dreams. But I would have felt stupid. I mean, he likes sheep? She would have thought I was crazy. The night before the race... Tyson and I finished our chariot. It was wicked cool. Tyson had been ma had made the metal parts in the armory's forges. I'd sanded the wood and put the and put the carriage together. It was blue and white with wave designs on the sides and a trident painted on the front. After all that work, it seemed only fair that Tyson should ride shotgun with me. I knew the horses wouldn't like it, and Tyson's extra weight would slow us down. But I did it anyways. As soon as we were turning in for bed, Tyson said, You are mad. I realized I'd been scowling. No, I'm not mad. He lay down in his bunk and was quiet in the dark. His body was way too long for his bed. When he pulled up the covers, his feet stuck out the bottom. I am a monster. Don't say that. 
It is okay. I will be a good monster. Then you will not have to be mad. I didn't know what to say. I stared at the ceiling and felt like I was dying. Slowly, right along with Talia's tree. It's just, I've never had a half-brother before. I tried to keep my voice from cracking. It's really different for me, and I'm worried about the camp, and another friend of mine, Grover, he might be in trouble. I feel like I, sh- I keep... I should do something to help, you know? But I don't know what. Tyson said nothing. I'm sorry, I told him. It's not your fault. I'm mad at Poseidon. I feel like he's trying to embarrass me, like he's trying to compare us or something. And I don't understand why. I heard a deep rumbling sound. Tyson was snoring. I sighed. Good night, big guy. And I closed my eyes, too. In my dream, Grover was wearing a wedding dress. It didn't fit him very well. The gown was too long, and the hem was caked with dried mud. The neckline kept falling off his shoulders. A tattered veil covered his face. He was standing in a dank cave, lit only by torches. There was a cot in one corner and an old-fashioned loom in the other, a length of white cloth half-woven on the frame. And he was staring right at me, like I was a TV program that he'd been waiting for. Thank the gods, he yelped. Can you hear me? My dream self was slow to respond. I was still looking around, taking in the stalactite ceiling, the stench of sheep and goats, the growling and grumbling and bleeding sounds that seemed to echo from behind a refrigerator-sized boulder, which was blocking the room's only exit, as if there was a much larger cavern beyond it. Percy, Grover said, Oh, please, I don't have the strength to project any further. You have to hear me. I hear you, I said. Grover, what's going on? From behind the boulder, a monstrous voice yelled, Honey Pie, are you done yet? Grover flinched. He called out in a falsetto, Not quite, dearest. A few more days. Bah, hasn't it been two weeks yet? No, no, dearest. Just five days. That leaves twelve more to go. The monster was silent, maybe trying to do the math. He must have been worse at arithmetic than I was, because he said, All right, honey, but hurry. I want to see under that veil. (laughs) Grover turned back to me. You have to help me. No time. I'm stuck in this cave on an island in the sea. Where? I don't know exactly. I went to Florida and turned left. What? How did you... It's a trap, Grover said. It's the reason no satyr has ever returned from his quest. He's a shepherd, Percy. And he has it. It's nature magic is so powerful. It smells just like the great god Pan. The satyrs come here thinking they found Pan, and then they get trapped and eaten by Polyphemus. Poly who? The Cyclops, Grover said, exasperated. I almost got away. I made it all the way to St. Augustine. But he followed you, I said, remembering my first dream. And he trapped you in a bridal boutique. That's right, Grover said. My first empathy link must have worked then. Look, this bridal dress is the only thing keeping me alive. He thinks I smell good, but I told him it was just goat-scented perfume. Thank goodness he can't see very well. His eye is still half-blind from the last time somebody poked it out. But soon, he'll realize what I am. He's only giving me two weeks to finish my bridal train, and he's getting impatient. Wait a minute. This Cyclops thinks you're... Yes, Grover said. He thinks I'm a lady Cyclops, and he wants to marry me. Under different circumstances, I might have busted out laughing, but Grover's voice was deadly, 
serious. He was shaking with fear. I'll come rescue you, I said. Where are you? The sea of monsters, of course. The sea of what? I told you. I don't know exactly where. And look, Percy, um, I'm really sorry about this, but this empathy link? Well, I had no choice. Our emotions are connected now. So if I die, don't tell me I'll die too. Oh, well, perhaps not. You might live on for years in a vegetative state. But, um, it would be a lot better if you got me out of here. Honey pie, the monster bellowed. Dinner time. Yummy, yummy sheep meat. Grover whimpered. I have to go. Hurry. Wait, you said it was here. What? But Grover's voice was already growing fainter. Sweet dreams. Don't let me die. The dream faded and I woke with a start. It was early morning. Tyson was staring down at me, his one big brown eye full of concern. Are you okay? He asked. His voice sent a chill down my neck, because he sounded almost exactly like the monster that I'd heard in my dream. The morning of the race was hot and humid. Fog lay low on the grounds like sauna steam. Millions of birds were roosting in the trees. Fat, gray and white pigeons. Except they didn't coo like regular birds. They made this annoying metallic screeching sound that reminded me of a submarine radar. The racetrack had been built in a grassy field between the archery range and the woods. Hephaestus' cabin had used the bronze bulls, which were now completely tame since they had their heads smashed in, to plow an oval track in a matter of minutes. There were rows of stone steps for the spectators. Tantalus, the satyrs, a few dryads, and all of the campers who weren't participating. Mr. D didn't show. He never got up before 10 o'clock. Right, Tantalus Tantalus announced as the teams began to assemble. A naiad had brought him a big platter of pastries. And as Tantalus spoke, his right hand chased a chocolate eclair across the judge's table. You all know the rules. A quarter mile track, twice around to win. Two horses per chariot. Each team will consist of a driver and a fighter. Weapons are allowed. Dirty tricks are expected. But um, try not to kill anybody. Tantalus smiled at, at us as if we were all naughty children. Any killing will result in harsh punishment. No s'mores at the campfire for a week. Now, ready your chariots. Beckendorf led the Hephaestus team onto the track. They had a sweet ride made of bronze and iron. Even the horses, which were magical automatons like the Cochleus bulls. I had no doubt that their chariot had all kinds of mechanical traps and even more fancy options than a fully loaded Maserati. The Ares chariot was blood red and pulled by two grisly horse skeletons. Clarice climbed aboard with a batch of javelins, spiked balls, caltrops, and a bunch of other nasty toys. Apollo's chariot was trim and graceful and completely gold, pulled by two beautiful palominos. Their fighter was armed with a bow, though he had promised not to shoot regular pointed arrows at opposing drivers. Hermes' chariot was green and kind of old-looking, as if it had been out in the garage for years. It didn't look like anything special, but it was manned by the Stoll brothers, and I shuddered to think what dirty tricks they'd schemed up. That left two chariots, one driven by Annabeth and the other by me. Before the race began, I tried to approach Annabeth and tell her about my dream. She perked up when I mentioned Grover, but then I told her what he said. She seemed to get distant again, suspicious. You're trying to distract me, she decided. What? No, I'm not. 
Oh, right. Like, Grover would just happen to stumble across the one thing that could save the camp. What do you mean? She rolled her eyes. Go back to your chariot, Percy. I'm not making this up. He's in trouble, Annabeth. She hesitated. I could tell she was trying to decide whether or not to trust me. Despite our occasional fights, we'd been through a lot together. And I knew she would never want anything bad to happen to Grover. Percy, an empathy link is so hard to do. I mean, it's more likely that you were really just dreaming. The Oracle, I said. We should consult the Oracle. Annabeth frowned. Last summer, before my quest, I visited the strange spirit that lived in the big house attic, and it had given me a prophecy that came true in ways that I'd never expected. The experience had freaked me out for months. Annabeth knew that I would never suggest going back there if I wasn't completely serious. Before she could answer, the conch horn sounded. Charioteers! Tantalus called. To your mark! We'll talk later, Annabeth told me, after I win. As I was walking back to my own chariot, I noticed how many more pigeons were in the trees now, screeching like crazy, making the whole forest rustle. Nobody else seemed to be paying much attention to them, but they made me nervous. Their beaks glinted strangely. Their eyes seemed shinier than regular birds. Tyson was having trouble getting our horses under control. I had to talk to them for a long time before they would settle down. He's a monster lord, they complained to me. He's a son of Poseidon, I told him, just like... Well, just like me. No, they insisted. Monster. Horse eater. Not trusted. I'll give you sugar cubes at the end of the race, I said. Sugar cubes? Very big sugar cubes. And apples. Did I mention the apples? Finally, they agreed to let me harness them. Now, if you've ever seen a Greek chariot, it's built for speed, not safety or comfort. It's basically a wooden basket open at the back, mounted on an axle between two wheels. The driver stands up the whole time, and you can feel every bump in the road. The carriage is made of such a light wood that if you wipe out making the hairpin turns at either end of the track, you'll probably tip over and crush both the chariot and yourself. It's an even better rush than skateboarding. I took the reins and maneuvered the chariot to the starting line. I gave Tyson a 10-foot pole and told him that his job was to push the other chariots away if they got too close, and to deflect anything they might try to throw at us. No hitting the ponies with the stick, he insisted. No, I agreed. Or people either, if you can help it. We're going to run a clean race, just keep the distractions away and let me concentrate on driving. We will win, he beamed. We are so going to lose, I thought to myself. But I had to drive. I wanted to show the others, well, I wasn't sure what exactly, that Tyson wasn't such a bad guy. Maybe I wasn't ashamed of being seen in public with him. Maybe that they hadn't hurt me with all their jokes and name-calling. As the chariots lined up, more shiny-eyed pigeons gathered in the woods. They were screeching so loudly now that the campers in the stands were starting to take notice, glancing at the birds. Tantalus didn't look concerned. But he did have to speak up to be heard over the noise. Charioteers, he shouted. Attend your mark. He waved his hand as the starting signal dropped. The chariots roared to life. Hooves thundered against the dirt. The crowd cheered. Almost immediately, there was a loud, nasty crack. I looked back just in time to see the Apollo chariot flip over. The Hermes cabin had rammed into it, maybe by mistake, maybe not. 
The riders were thrown free, but their panicked horses dragged the golden chariot across the track. Hermes team, Travis and Connor Stoll, were laughing at their good luck, but not for long. The Apollo horses crashed into theirs, and the Hermes chariot flipped too, leaving a pile of broken wood and four rearing horses in the dust. Two chariots down in the first 20 feet. I loved this sport. I took my attention back to the front of my chariot. We were making good time, pulling ahead of Ares, but Annabeth's chariot was way ahead of us. She was already making her turn at the first post, her javelin man grinning and waving at us, shouting, See ya! The Hephaestus chariot was starting to gain on us, too. Beckendorf pressed a button, and the panel slid open on the side of his chariot. Sorry, Percy, he yelled. Three sets of balls and chains shot straight toward our wheels. They would have wrecked us completely if Tyson hadn't whacked them aside with a quick swipe of his pole. He gave the Hephaestus chariot a good shove and sent them skittering sideways while we pulled ahead. Nice work, Tyson, I yelled. Birds, he cried. What? We were whipping along so fast now, it was hard to hear or see anything. But Tyson pointed toward the woods, and I saw what he was worried about. The pigeons had risen from the trees. They were spiraling like a huge tornado heading toward the track. No big deal, I told him, told myself. They're just pigeons. I tried to concentrate on the race. We made our first turn, the wheels creaking under us. The, the chariot threatened to tip. But we were only about ten feet now behind Annabeth. If I could just get a little closer... Tyson could use his pole. Annabeth's fighter wasn't smiling now. He pulled a javelin from his collection and took aim at us. He was about to throw it when we heard the screaming. The pigeons were swarming, thousands of them dive-bombing the spectators in the stands, attacking the other chariots. Beckendorf, Beckendorf was mobbed. His fighter tried to bat the birds away, but he couldn't see anything. The chariot veered off course and plowed through the strawberry fields, the mechanical horses steaming. In Ares' chariot, Clarice barked an order to her fighter, who quickly threw a screen of camouflage netting over the basket. The birds swarmed around it, pecking and clawing at the fighter's hands as he tried to hold up the net. But Clarice just gritted her teeth and kept driving. Her skeletal horses seemed immune to the distraction. The pigeons pecked uselessly at their empty eye sockets and flew through the ribcages. But the stallions kept right on running. The spectators weren't so lucky. The birds were slashing at any bit of exposed flesh, driving everyone into a panic. Now that the birds were closer, it was clear they weren't normal pigeons. Their eyes were beady and evil-looking. Their beaks were made of bronze, and judging from the yelps of the campers, they must have been razor-sharp. Stymphalian birds, Ambeth yelled. She slowed down and pulled her chariot alongside mine. They'll strip anyone to bones if we don't drive them away. Tyson, I said, we're turning around. Going the wrong way? He asked. Always, I grumbled, but I steered the chariot toward the stands. Annabeth rode right next to me. She shouted, Heroes to arms! But I wasn't sure anyone could hear her over the screeching of the birds in the general chaos. Riptide as a wave of birds. I held onto my reins in one hand and managed to draw a riptide as a wave of birds dived at my face. Their metal beaks snapping. I slashed them out of the air, and they exploded into dust and feathers. But there were still millions of them left. One nailed me in the back, and, and I almost jumped straight out of the chariot. Annabeth wasn't having much better luck. The closer we got to the stands, the thicker the clouds of birds became. Some of the campers were trying to fight back. The Athena campers were calling for shields. The archers from Apollo's cabin brought out their bows and arrows, ready to slay the menace. 
but with so many campers mixed in with the birds, it wasn't safe to shoot. Too many, I yelled to Annabeth. How do you get rid of them? She stabbed the brass pigeon with her knife. Hercules, Hercules used noise, brass bells. He scared them away with the most horrible sound he could. Her eyes got wide. Percy, Chiron's collection. I understood instantly. You think it'll work? She handed her fighter the reins and leapt from her chariot into mine like it was the easiest thing in the world. To the big house. It's our only chance. Clarice had just pulled across the finish line, completely unopposed, and it seemed to notice for the first time how serious the bird problem was. When she saw us driving away, she yelled, You're running? The fight is here, cowards! She drew her sword and charged for the stands. I urged our horses into a gallop. The chariot rumbled through the strawberry fields, across the volleyball pit, and lurched it into a halt in front of the big house. Annabeth and I ran inside, tearing down the hallway to, Ch to Chiron's apartment. His boombox was still on his nightstand. So were his favorite CDs. I grabbed the most repulsive one I could find. Annabeth snatched the boombox, and together we ran back outside. Down at the track, the chariots were in flames. Wounded campers ran in every direction, with birds shredding their clothes and pulling out their hair, while Tantalus chased breakfast pastries around the stands, every once in a while yelling, Everything's under control! Not to worry! We pulled up to the finish line, and Annabeth got the boombox ready. I prayed the batteries weren't dead. I pressed play and started up Chiron's favorite, the all-time greatest hits of Dean Martin. Suddenly, the air was filled with violins and a bunch of guys moaning in Italian. The demon pigeons went nuts. They started flying around in circles, running into each other like they wanted to bash their own brains out, and then they abandoned the track altogether and flew skyward in a huge, dark wave. Now, Annabeth yelled, archers! With clear targets, the Apollo archers had flawless aim. Most of them could knock five or six arrows at once. Within minutes, the ground was littered with dead bronze-beaked pigeons, and the survivors were a distant trail of smoke on the horizon. The camp was saved, but the wreckage wasn't pretty. Most of the chariots had been completely destroyed. Almost everyone was wounded and bleeding from multiple bird pecks. The kids from Aphrodite's cabin were screaming because their hairdos had been ruined and their clothes pooped on. Bravo, Tantalus said. But he wasn't looking at me or Annabeth. We have our first winner. He walked to the finish line and awarded the golden laurels of the, for the race to a stunned-looking Clarice. Then he turned and smiled at me. And now, to punish the troublemakers who disrupted this race. And that is the end of chapter 6.